Hey, hey, welcome to Why Are We Whispering with me, Jenny Gay, author, stepmom, and all-around truth seeker and teller. If you're tuning in, you too are tired of sugar-coated content and conversations. This is the place where I put a megaphone to the mouths of adults, talking about life experiences that most of us find too shameful, too uncomfortable, too traumatic, and too embarrassing to discuss openly. We dive headfirst into experiences, thoughts, and behaviors that we keep secret or hush-hush, never truly speaking honestly and openly about them, but that most of us have in common. And I'm talking about it because life can be hard, it can be ugly, and it can be painful. And guess what? It's like that for all of us. So let's stop whispering. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining today's episode. Today's episode is going to be started with a trigger warning as we are sharing a rape survivor story. And more than that, the legal process that took place afterwards and the second and third trauma that ensued post-event and rape. With me, I have Abby Atkinson. I feel incredibly privileged today to have her joining me. More because she has allowed us to use our platform to tell her story, which I don't believe she has done publicly yet or to um, this kind of audience. Um, So I'm very honored that you have um, agreed to speak with us today. But more than that, Abby, I am just here to celebrate your strength and your courage and ultimate resilience because you've been through a war and you have a story that many millions of women share with you. So you're not alone in that. And um, I want to thank you again for speaking to me today. So if you're comfortable, Abby, I'd love for you to talk us through your story. Thanks, Jenny. Um, Thank you for having me. And thanks for the opportunity to to talk about this. Like you say, there are millions of women out, um, out there that could probably benefit from hearing my story to know that they, they are not alone and how tricky life can be after something so traumatic happens. But life does go on. Um, just before we get into my personal story, I thought it might be useful to put a little bit of context, UK context, around um, the story. So... Uh, a lady called uh, Dame Vera Bard was uh, the UK's victim um, commissioner from 2019 until uh, September 2023. In her first report, so that was 2019, she made a headline um, stating that rape had effectively become decriminalised in the UK. Um, and then in her final report, so her 2022 report, she stated that nothing had changed to change her mind. Um, she stepped down in September because she was ac- um, accusing the government of downgrading victims' interests and her access to ministers had been restricted, so effectively making her job impossible. Um, now, if we just look at some of the stats for the UK, so why she was feeling like this, uh, looking at the m- most recent rape crisis stats, um, I've got down here and correct me if you've got different ones Jenny because I don't want to say anything that's wrong here but um, one in four women have been sexually assaulted or raped and that's adult women. Um, One in 18 men have been sexually assaulted or raped and uh, one in three adults who have been um, raped experience this in their own home. Six in seven rapes against women are by someone that they know and that in 2022 Rape crisis estimated that 798,000 
women have been raped in that 12 month period. So that's one in 30 women. So for listeners, um, that's probably someone that, you know, our networks usually extend beyond 30 people. So that could quite easily be a, a family member or, or a friend, if, if not yourself. Um, and then there are a few different stats on the, on perpetrators, but I've got, uh, uh down that 98% of um, convicted perpetrators are men. And then finally, a piece of research that was published in 2022, um, which was done by City University of London, concluded that 1% of reported rapes lead to conviction. So there you can see why um, Dame Vera Bird, uh, Bird sorry, um, concluded that rape had effectively become decriminalised in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, then moving to my story, because I think what happens is we get these, these stats or what I find, and I don't know if that's just my algorithm on social media, etc. but we get these stats fired at us quite a lot. And because it doesn't say men's violence against women or men raping women, it says women are raped or X, uh, four, one in four women are raped. They kind of, it almost takes all the, the, um, human out of it. It becomes just a figure. And we almost become desensitized, I think, to this because it's such a common occurrence. Or something that happens to women rather than who the perpetrators are, which is what the more important aspect of that statistic is. A hundred percent. And just before getting on to to my story, um, I just want to note that um, I'm coming at this from a really privileged position. So my story is um, holds my privilege with it. I'm middle class. Um, I'm well educated. I was in a full time professional role at the time. Um, and I have a really supportive family network. Now, not everybody who has um, experienced or will experience, unfortunately, a similar event um, has that. And I think it's really important because as I talk through, I'm used the terms like we or um, with support. And I think it, the story becomes completely different if you don't have that network there. Um, so I'll just kind of walk you through things in a chronological order as that's the way that it kind of is in my brain, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, in the early hours of uh, a morning in March in 2018, um, an attack happened and it happened in my home. It happened in my bed and it was my neighbor. Um, I was living with with uh, my ex partner at the time, and we were living in separate rooms because we had split up. Um, I went in to speak to him for help, and he wasn't in a position or a state to offer me any help. So I called my sister, and my sister is a nurse, and she was just coming off a night shift, and she drove straight to me. She didn't know what was going, what she was driving into or coming into. She just knew that I sounded distressed. Um. So, sorry, I've um, kind of skipped ahead a little bit there. Before I managed to ring her, I had to physically wrestle this person out of my house. So, as you can imagine, my kind of um, emotional state was quite high. And so I wasn't really making any sense when I, when I called my sister. Anyway, um, when she came... Sorry. When, um, when she came to pick me up... Um, we drove about 40 miles to my parents' house. Um, my parents were actually on holiday at the time. Uh, and, but that was like a safe space that I could go to. Um, 
on the way on the drive, she asked me what happened and why I had, why I was so distressed. And I told her what happened and she stopped the car. She looked at me and she just said, you've been raped. We need to tell the police. Now, this is where the kind of first thing with that support system kicks in is that if I hadn't told her and if she hadn't have been the person to say we need to ring the police, I probably wouldn't have done it or I would have waited because it was such a trauma to go through. I needed to process it. I needed that space to think and taking that time then put places um, a survivor at a disadvantage because if someone has taken longer than what I took, which was next to no time at all, then there's a question mark over why didn't you call us straight away? Well, if, if I didn't have that support network, I probably would have done the same and not called straight away. Um, so the first officer that came out to speak to me, he was a quiet man. He was he listened. Um, but one of the first questions that he asked was, have I ever reported a rape before? And I asked him I, with a really, really positive look on my face, why? Why does that matter? Like, what What relevance is that question? And he just said, because it makes it a lot more difficult to process and to progress if you have reported it more than once. Now, if we go back to the stats that we spoke about very briefly at the beginning, if one in four um, adult women have been raped or sexually assaulted, it's quite, it, I think, quick math, <laughs> One in 16 women have probably been raped or sexually assaulted more than once, so twice. So it's not an impossible thing to need to report twice. And it's like they're putting the focus on the victim's pattern or the survivor's pattern of behaviour rather than looking at it from it's men or people doing this. Um, And it also starts to make you see that there is a, a picture or starts to make you think about a picture of what the what a perfect victim looks like mm. um, and that isn't someone who has experienced uh, this type of crime more than once um so as the officer left after taking my statement um they took my underwear they took my clothes and I was told not to shower um which was really really hard because Obviously, your skin is crawling. You can feel every skin cell, every hair follicle, everything feels disgusting. And you want to rip your skin off, but you have to wait. And um, I, in the kind of interim time between me waiting and then going to the rape crisis centre, I was told that the, um, the rapist had been uh, arrested and that he had admitted everything that he'd done. So that kind of to me I let out a little bit of oxygen and I was like okay this might get easier anyway kind of eight hours went by ten hours went by and I was still sat there in the same skin that I'd been raped in and I was still crawling and I hadn't been to the rape crisis center um my sister ended up picking up the phone trying to find out when I was going what was happening and um then said can she just get in the shower at least if it's not going to be today can she get in the shower and the officer said yes she put the phone down I ran the shower as literally I was about to take one step into the shower and she came bursting through the door the police have just rung back don't don't wash so there's a real kind of miscommunication here and it was almost like they'd forgotten that I was waiting for this um 
they for to go to the uh physical examination and I was kind of just sat festering I guess um and then I got picked up and I was picked up in a marked police car now that might not seem like a big thing um to anybody or to uh the police officers and the officers actually driving were fine I mean not that I wanted to have a deep and meaningful conversation with them but they you know they asked if I was okay and they they drove very quietly but the fact that you're then placed in a police um, marked vehicle starts to make you feel like you've done something wrong. Well, that's how it made me feel, because I'm looking at people in the traffic at the traffic lights next to me and they can see me. And I look like a criminal because I'm in a, a marked police car and there's plenty of unmarked police cars or other cars that could have been used. And it just it starts to you start to see the thoughtlessness of the system that's in place. Mm-hmm. and that there's no kind of how is this going to make someone feel being in a car which is known or seen to the wider public as if you're in this car you are a criminal you've done something wrong um and then getting to the um rape crisis center the women there who did the examinations um were very polite very loving like i wouldn't say kind of they were gentle. They were very, but they were there, and they were doing it for a, a specific reason. They did tell you the reasons, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Obviously, it's not a nice experience, but it wasn't. It didn't feel like a comfortable experience. It was just we need to do this, and we're going to just get it, get on with it, and do it. Mechanical, very. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Thank you. Um, and they write down everything that you're saying as well at the, at the same time. Again, I asked why they were doing that. Um, they said because it gets submitted to evidence and so I said do I get um, the opportunity to look at what you're writing down because at the moment it just looks like you're writing down notes and they said yeah yeah you do but that was not offered to me that was only because I'd asked for that information so if well you're fucking traumatized so you're not going to be thinking about or you might not be thinking about what are they what they're doing over there but because my natural the way my brain naturally is I'm like what are you writing down why are you doing that and if you're not someone who asks those questions naturally something could be written down or interpreted wrong because they ask really specific questions of like when was the last time you had consensual sex when how many sexual partners have you had and it you might say something and or you might say it in the wrong way or it's just misunderstood and that becomes then a key piece of evidence right um so whilst all this was going on the I don't know what happened exactly but the rapist decided that he changed his mind and that although he'd admitted it originally on being arrested um he was now saying that I had invited him into my bedroom and that I'd asked him to do what he'd done um so that's when things really started to switch for me and I didn't feel as if the system was set up to help support um, me as someone who had a crime perpetrated against them. So then my phone was asked for. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, what about his phone? If you need to see phone evidence, take his fucking phone, not my phone. I have just experienced this. This is my phone was something that kept me safe because I or gave me got me to safety afterwards because I was able to ring my sister. If you are removing my phone for however like who knows how long for that's leaving me without a safety mechanism when I'm feeling my most vulnerable again it's just a thoughtless process of the system that's in place 
Um, and when I asked for an explanation of why, no one could give it to me. It wasn't, I had had no previous um, text or WhatsApp or whatever communication with this person. I'd spoken to them um, face-to-face quite a few times and I'd spoken to his wife via text, but I'd never had his number or it was just really perplexing. So I just did not, did not understand. Nobody could like communicate a reasonable um, reason for why they needed to take my phone. And then the uh, radio silence started. So the police are, are obviously incredibly busy, but you're as the person that the crimes happened to, you're completely kept in the dark. So the next I heard from them was a few days later saying I need to come in and record their video evidence. And the location was the train uh, train station, sorry, police station that was um, nearest to where the crime happened. So that meant I had to drive past the house that it happened in to get to the um, police station to record. So I was then re-traumatized driving past my mum was driving and I was screaming I like my, I just wanted to get out of the car um and I even remember grabbing for the door luckily the doors were automatically locked anyway as the car was moving and um my mum having to kind of put me back together again before I went into the police station to then go through it again and feel very much re-traumatized again um and again that kind of the like you said before mechanical it all becomes very mechanical there's no emotion to it whilst nobody is um directly hostile towards me nobody's um warm or welcoming there's no everything's going to be okay let's just take this one step at a time it's right we need to go in here you need to answer these questions you need to answer them in the way that you did with the, the original statement any differences and there's going to be problems and this was a week or so after my original statement. So things process and things might have come out slightly differently. My words might have changed. Um, <clears throat> but what actually happened obviously hadn't changed. But the way I was then obviously think overthinking and becoming like it was me being questioned. I needed to prove that my story that I said the first time round was correct. And that's why I'm here today to kind of corroborate my own story. Not that they need to do video evidence because if you are incapable of going into court, they will show this evidence. Um, and so it just makes you feel again, like you're second guessing yourself. Like you're not the one that's had the wrong done to them. You've got to prove that you've had the wrong done to you. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it was back to the radio silence. Um, and I kept ringing and I was asking like, what's happening. And it was just, holding me completely in the dark. Um, eventually I got through to an officer. So I was probably ringing, I would say every day um, and maybe one phone call in every, once a month probably got um, returned. And every time it was, we're building a case for this, um, the CPS, so the Crown Prosecution Service and the, taste, the case has to be watertight. But there's no explanation of what that, what that means. It's just this case needs to be watertight. Well, as someone as someone who has a bit of an understanding of the world, if you just explain to me what this process is, roughly how long it's going to take, or then I can expect that there's going to be silence. And I, my kind of, my needs or my, um, what's the word? I can kind of temper my behaviour then to the process of what's going on. So I understand. Um, 
but it, every time it was just the same answer. No, this needs to be watertight. Well, what the fuck does that even mean if no one's going to actually explain it to me? Right. Um, and then that kind of brings me to the next um, issue around the system is that it's the uh, state that brings the case and not I'm the key, the key witness or the person who the crimes happened to is the key witness. So there's a complete lack of legal advice. Um, or from my experience, there was, and I didn't have a clue of where I was like standing legally. Um, and this kind of back and forth with, well, me ringing, constantly pestering the police that went on for six to eight months. Um, and all that time you're kind of left in limbo. So I think, uh, from rape crisis, from the rape crisis, crisis website i think now on average the the waiting time to get to court is between one to three years i was lucky yeah which is insane it's so insane um i was lucky because i managed to get there in under a year i think it was just like a few days short of a year um so i feel for anyone who's been stuck in that system for long for longer than what i was because it paralyzes you you can't move forwards because you've got this stuck in your trauma you have no time to put it to bed because you might not hear from the police for four weeks and then they might all of a sudden need something from you. So ring you up out of the blue, which then sends you into a state of panic. You could be at work, you could be dropping your kids off at school, you could be doing anything that's normal, any kind of aspect of normal life, and then you're just thrown straight back into where you were. Um, again, it's just the thoughtless process of the system. Um, I'm sorry, um, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Through this year, what's happening for him? He's just out. So he's living his life. He's living his life. He's just, he's at work. He's doing, <clears throat> taking his kids to school or doing whatever he's doing. And that one of the things that I said to the police um, was that I didn't want to run into this person in public because I wasn't mm-hmm. sure what I was going to do. And that happened. I ran into them in the city centre. Now, that day I ran. But I could have quite easily gone into fight mode and gone and been physical with that person. I could have been verbally aggressive towards that person. And then I would have been in trouble. And I would have happened to be dealing with the consequences of my actions because of their inaction. Right. And um, But actually, as it happened, when that did happen to me, I ran. Uh, And I... At the time, I beat myself up about it. I was like, fucking hell, Abby. That was so weak. That was so weak. But it was the, the right thing for me to do. Yeah, just to get out of there. Um, so yeah, he's got a year of just getting on with it and not really caring about the situation, whereas I am thinking about it every single day. Right. <clears throat> um, and then before your case goes to the Crown Court, you go to magistrates. And that's just a formality, really. It's just a way for them to set a date. Um and just to prove that they've got all the evidence and everything in place. Uh, now, the magistrate's court is public, so anybody, me or you, could go up there today and just go and sit in on whatever's happening. Um, and I had told the police so many times, I can't, I, countless times, that I wanted to go to the magistrate's hearing because he changed his plea and I wanted him to see that I was not going to back the fuck down. I wanted him to have to look at me and think fuck, she's bringing this and she's 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 not going to let it drop because I was coming for him and I did not want him to think, 
oh, she's not turned up. She's weak. She's, I've, I've won this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, that information was withheld from me. So I had rung and I had rung and I had rung. And then 12 hours before, so the evening before, um, my partner actually managed to get through to someone and they said, oh, such a, such a, uh, person is going to be on the, in court at, um, 10 a.m. tomorrow. So I got my parents to take me and we arrived there just before 10 and everything had been reshuffled and he'd already been and gone. So I had built myself up to face him and I just screamed. I just, just, I got ran out of the building and I just screamed. And I was just like, fuck, really, just fucking fuck. Um, and um, then I got my, my date through. <coughs> Sorry. It's okay. I got my date through for um, the Crown Court. Uh, again, no legal advice. Um, it was just, you're the key witness. Um, this is the date of the court date. Uh, clear a week in your diary because it could could run over. Oh, sorry, clear two weeks in your diary because it could run over a week. Um, and then I got the option to go to look at the kind of look around the court and I would strongly advise that to anybody who finds themselves in this situation to do so because those rooms are intimidating they are the large wooden panelled rooms that you see on tv with the cage in the middle with the um the criminal or the uh, accused in and it's a really daunting setup so I was grateful for that experience it really prepared me I guess for or I would have been hugely underprepared if I hadn't done that. Um, whilst, again, whilst I was in um, looking around the court, the court staff were lovely. They were really, really, really helpful. They were probably the nicest people out of the whole process. Um, I said to the guy that was showing me around, because he said, do you want to be in the room? You don't have to be. You can be on a video link. We can just run your um, video evidence if you want which is why you did that video evidence um, however many months ago. The police hadn't told me that at the time. Um, and, uh, or do you want to be in the room? And I said, I want to be in the room. And he said, well, do you want a screen up? Because um, you might not want to see the um, perpetrator. And I said that I wanted to screen down because I wanted to um, look at him as I was giving my evidence. Mm-hmm. Um but he, the uh, person that was showing me around the court like, really strongly advised against it. And I was really glad because on reflection, although I was in a real fuck you fighting stage then, coming away from the situation and looking back now, it was the right thing because it meant I was not distracted from giving my best evidence. I had clarity of thought because I was not being clouded by looking and any um, facial kind of expressions um, from the criminal, from the rapist. And that I could just focus on the jury and communicating with the jury and having that um, communication with them without any interference from from him. Um, now, getting to the day of the court, so the whole kind of setup of it is a it's a real real faff. It's just um, a really clunky experience and leaves you again in. Um, in the dark, not really understanding what's happening. Is the person, has the person even showed up? Like what is going on? Mm. And it kind of leaves you sitting there 
building your anxiety, overthinking everything. Um, and there's a huge financial lack of support as well. So they ask you to book um, a week to two weeks out of your work schedule. Now, I was lucky because my employer allowed me to take that as leave and not my pay was not affected. But not everybody's going to be in that same position. And if you don't have annual leave to take, the, um, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I'm aware, sorry, I don't think that your employer is obliged to give you paid leave. So and you might not even feel comfortable speaking to your um, employer about this situation. It's it's yeah, horrific. Like, why do you want to tell everybody about it? Right. Um, so for me, there's like this huge financial issue around taking that amount of time off. And I think that maybe they offer to pay for your parking. And that's about it. <clears throat> so it's a barrier for people who aren't in a um, economic position to be able to support themselves through the process. Um, and then going to the actual back to going into court. So I think my case ran for four to five days. I can't remember exactly. Um, and again, because of the lack of legal advice, I was relying on the police to prep for me, I guess. It's they were just like, it's going to be fine. It's not like you see on TV. They can't be hostile. You go in, you see um, our barrister, who I met for the very first time the morning that I was going to give my evidence. So I didn't see them at the beginning of the court case. The, the court case started three days prior. I saw them the morning of me going to give evidence. So I had no time to build rapport or trust or even understand that they understood my story. I right. was just relying on the fact that they were going to be good at their job. I had n- no idea of the capabilities of this person. Um, and it's just so much trust to give someone without really, without having any idea of who they are as a person. I just, it's just unbelievable. And also reading somebody's facts of their case on paper is different than hearing it from the survivor themselves to really exactly. get the context of what's taken place. That doesn't make any sense to me. No, it's just, it's baffling. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I went in and I gave my evidence and then the cross examine nation started and it was just like you see on tv it was just like you see in the worst worst of films it was horrendous it was really 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 horrible um they ask you the same question several different ways and trying to trip you up trying to make you look stupid trying to undermine your character basically doing everything to make it seem as though you are making this up and that you were the one that should actually be being it should be the other way around you're the criminal um and there was this huge back and forth for ages over what I thought was just ridiculous um detail and um it was to do with my my bedroom door and and was it open or was it closed and he'd asked me this question several times and I was just like why does it even matter it, it doesn't matter but then um like I said to you previously Jenny it kind of sprung to mind that actually my door was closed and I had reasons for that um and I remembered it being vividly me closing the door um and then it moved on to why my dog had not attacked this person um if I hadn't Im- invited them into the house and um, my dog knew this person it was a neighbor and my dog is not a guard dog it's a pet dog um mm-hmm. she was a doberman I had a doberman at the time and um it was there was just this whole obsession of why she hadn't um stopped him from coming into my house well that's because she's a 
pet. I haven't trained her to, she's not trained. She's not a working dog. She's just right. a soft sofa dog. Um, and uh, then I was really quite emotional as, um, as you would be. And the judge had asked if I wanted to, to stop as I was perhaps too emotional and it was awkward. Um, Oh, I'm sorry that my rape is making things yeah. awkward. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, God forbid I've made the situation awkward, have I? Yeah. Um, and I said, no, I said, no, the, my, my emotions are part, part of it. This is how I'm feeling. This is how it's affected me. Um, and then my sister went in after me. I'd left. I left the building and she went in after me. And this is where at the beginning of my story, I said that she was a nurse. And I think that this is a really vital um, part of the story is because she's used to writing down things in a chronological order. She's used to writing patient notes, etc. So she's very trained in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she was giving it, and she'd been, she's been to coroner's court and things like that before. So she had experience in a similarish kind of situation where people are relying on the facts. So she was very factual and very, very forceful with her answers. Now, if my the next kind of witness hadn't been that way that could have destroyed everything that I had laid out and we are not trained to answer questions like that we're humans we're not supposed to be defending our um kind of actions all the time that's not how we're we're trained um and just because she'd had that specific training kind of meant that she was able to give the best evidence possible so I, I can't even imagine how it would have gone for someone who didn't have the backup of another witness who, or what they see as the first witness or first response witness or something. Um, if if they don't have that kind of support there. Um, but before sentencing, so the jury came back and found him guilty. So we did a great fucking job. And um, that was obviously the best outcome however in between sentence the jury coming back and then the judge sentencing you're supposed to have the opportunity to read um a victim statement and the judge didn't give me that opportunity they just sent they uh, they didn't even tell me they just sentenced and then I was given the verdict and the sentence in one is one hit kind of thing um if you don't mind would it be okay to read this absolutely Absolutely. Now, I, I will say I am dyslexic, and although I did write this, it was um, a few years ago, and I haven't, because it's so traumatic, I haven't um, reread it. <clears throat> so if I stumble on my words, I apologise. No, please don't. Don't apologise. Absolutely take this time to say everything that you want to say. Um, it's just on the screen next to me, so if I'm looking at a funny angle, like, no, don't <laughs> I'm writing this personal impact statement to try in some way to portray the trauma and distress my family and I have continued to face as a result of the attack. It's difficult for me to describe how I feel, as whilst I cannot avoid thinking about the attack every day, I find it difficult to talk about. I struggle to deal with the emotions as it feels as vivid today as ever, and it's extremely distressing to relive. Words cannot express the feeling of vulnerability that I carry with me every day. My bedroom, my house, where my safe haven from any of any of my problems um, I had in the world now feels so insignificant. 
You're supposed to feel safe and secure in your own bed. My attacker has cruelly taken that away from me. Ever since the attack, I have struggled with severe lack of sleep. I suffer with vivid nightmares, night terrors, sleep paralysis, and a general fear of going to sleep as I cannot keep the images I fight back during the day from coming to the fore in my sleep. As a result, my health has suffered uh, and I struggle to function in my daily life. This also affects my family, who I now live with, and as I often wake screaming and crying in my sleep, which is extremely distressing for them as they are unable to help me. For this to happen in my own home, especially by a neighbour that I had considered to be trustworthy, has viciously altered my view of trust and judgment when interacting with other people. It it has made me question and review my relationships I already have with friends, colleagues, other neighbours, and as especially resulted in being close to new relationships due to fear of feeling um, exposed to mistrust. This is extremely difficult as I have often second-guessed myself and tell myself I'm overreacting, which leads to severe anxiety and a feeling of a heavy burden weighing on me or whether I can trust my own personal judgment. Um, Prior to the attack, I was confident, outgoing um, and personal, both in my personal and professional lives. I have pushed myself to achieve as much independence as possible from a young age and have been lucky enough to achieve this by owning my own house just outside of a large city where I worked. I was proud of what I had achieved both professionally and personally. I was excited for the future in both respects. I'd found a stable base. I was enthusiastic about driving forward my career and pushing myself to my next level. However, the emotional and physical impact of this attack initially meant I had to take a prolonged and unwanted break from work. And once I did return, I found it incredibly difficult to conduct myself in the same, at the same level as I did before. My job is fast paced with a lot of human interaction upon which I previously thrived, but now is sometimes just too much for me to deal with. Some days I can barely face my colleague, colleagues, <clears throat> often shutting myself away in the bathroom. And finding it distressing to even answer an outside phone call because as I'm overcome with anxiety. Whilst the few people I have confided in at work have been understanding, I, I cannot help feel as though I have, have to continue to miss out on opportunities to progress my career as I simply don't have the strength or focus to take on anything other than surviving the day. If it was not for the financial difficulty, I I'm in due to continuing to pay for a mortgage in a house that I no longer live. Um, it, my immediate thought would be to take a career break, um, as it's too much to hand, um, as it's too much to handle struggling at work every day as I'm piecing my life back together. Any feeling, sorry, this is very long. Any feeling I previously had of independence is now completely gone due to the attack. After it happened, my sister thankfully took me away from my house, which I can only imagine um, was distress- how distressing it was for her. Um, and I have not been back to that house since. I have been forced to move, move back in to my parents' house, which is over an hour drive um, away, which not on, sorry, which not only makes me feel like I'm regressing in life, but also as a significant financial burden to, in respect of commuting costs, which is distressing in itself as cruelly my route to work takes me close to where I used to live, every morning filling me with fear as I approach the area. I feel isolated and lonely. 
so far from my previous life and friends, but every day I suffer a feeling of dread and vulnerability as I approach the life that used to be mine where I felt safe and confident. Often when I'm around the city, trying as best I, as I can to continue a normal life or as part of my work duties, I become overawed by crowds and, um, and feel as though I can see my attacker amongst them. This has a num- on a number of occasions led to panic attacks and public distress that I'm unable to control. This has happened that this was happening prior to an incident where I was unfortunate enough to see my attacker, my attacker on the street. As, as he has been free to go about his life whilst I have been suffering. Luckily, at this time, I was with a close friend who managed to subdue my emotions, but I still avoid this area today to avoid it happening again. Prior to the attack, I used my hobbies to escape from any bad emotions in my life. I would regularly use physical activity as a way to put my mind at ease and relieve myself of stress. Not only did the attack stopped me from being able to do this at the beginning, but I've struggled mentally to return to my original mm. mindset and I have found myself suffering, suffering with a lack of enthusiasm to get up and do things that I once enjoyed. Activities such as going to the gym or seeing a band involve large numbers of people. As previously mentioned, I'm now fearful of this. This has led me to becoming increasingly anxious in places that I that should fill me, fill me with positivity. It is is almost as though I feel physically exhausted and I cannot do things that I was once able to do, as if my body is not my own and it cannot do what it once did. This feeling can sometimes intensify into feeling that I'm no longer comfortable in my own skin. My skin is literally crawling. Things of familiarity, um, feelings of familiarity I formerly had are no longer there. Whilst I cannot help but focus on how I per- I feel personally after the attack, I know the impact has been huge on my family and friends. And I feel sorry that they are having to deal with the pain because of something that happened to me. My parents were the other side of the world on the first day of a two-week holiday when the attack happened and they had to fly home losing all their bookings in the process. I cannot imagine the feelings that they had to endure being so far away from me when they found out what happened and how distressing the feeling of being powerless must have been. They have also um, had to visit my house in order to remove all my belongings and deal with maintaining in uh, maintaining it as, I'm attempt, as I attempt to sell it, which brings more emotional stress as I have to fear for the safety of any new family that moves into that house. Um, and I do feel also for the surrounding neighbours who are unaware of what my attacker is capable of, at least until he's sentenced. I simply can't deal with anything to do with the house, and every time I think about it, images of what happened um, become stronger and closer to me. But at the same time, I know my parents have to enjoy being there, knowing my attacker is living peacefully next door. Whilst they um, have tried everything to make me feel at home with them, um, I know that I just don't feel safe at any... Don't sorry, I just don't feel safe anywhere. And this is upsetting for them. Um, as it is when I'm, as it is, was when I'm away from the home, as they feel fear, like I do, that I'm more vulnerable now. As a result of this, and all the aforementioned emotional issues, my parents are helping me financially to undertake ongoing counselling that otherwise I would not be able to afford to do. 
even getting to the point of where I could handle direct counselling without simply breaking down has taken me nearly nine months since the attack. The sheer amount of questions, examinations, medical reviews and phone calls that I was subjected to in the immediate aftermath of the attack took so much out of me that I felt like I was a shell. And although I knew that the issues I am now facing require professional help in order to manage it, I was um, it was just too difficult to put myself through any more traumatic experiences where I have to relive what he did to me. I'm incredibly grateful for the support of my parents and for my partner, um, both emotionally and financially. But I cannot help feeling guilty at this stage in their lives that um, what has happened to me has caused them so much stress and anguish. The impact of my attack is selfish and degrading actions will be with me for life. I know that this is unavoidable and will far outlast any sentence he has to serve, but I am looking forward to knowing he can no longer hurt me or anyone else for an interim period. I hope that the ongoing support of my family through counselling, I will be able to rebuild and put my life back together piece by piece, although it will be forever different to the dreams that I once had. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I'm, it was long, longer than what I thought it was going to be, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. And I'm so sorry that the legal system did not provide you with the opportunity to mm. have your moment in court to read that. But I'm feeling very privileged that you shared that with us today. And I, and I hope that that gives you some semblance, a little bit of peace that you were able to say that out loud now. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. No, thank you for the opportunity. That brings me kind of to the end of my, my story. Thank you. So... Uh, I just, I, I applaud you for your bravery, first and foremost. I can't imagine how it's been for you for the last few years. And I guess the first question is that, that I want to ask you right now is how are you doing today? Um, now that I believe that happened in 2018, we're now in 2023. Has time provided you with any semblance of, of healing? Yes. Yes, it has. Um, now it doesn't stop every single kind of bad night or I'm sleepless night but I am really good I held on for a long time of with anger I was very very angry um, and yeah. I was angry in a lot of ways I was and at a lot of people that anger was only hurting myself so I've worked really really hard to find ways to let go of that um and like for example this opportunity today to be able to speak turning turns that anger into something positive um, because the anger drives me, but hopefully something positive will come out from someone hearing this story. I, I'm almost certain that it will. So some of us have the privilege of never experiencing the system as mm-hmm. you have experienced. And I think that there's a lot of people who sit on the periphery of that system, never ever having to experience it. And it's quite easy to sit on the periphery and say, ah, there's nothing wrong with the way things are, it seems to be working fine. She got her justice. You know, he's he's in jail. The system works. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say to people who are sitting on the periphery, never having directly experienced it, kind of denouncing the the fact that this is a broken system and that it doesn't actually serve the survivors and it re-traumatizes them if they have the courage and the bravery to step forward and report their rape? Does it fuck, really? I mean... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this system doesn't do anything to serve justice. Perpetrator of the crime, the rapist, um, got sentenced originally to 18 months. And then I appealed that because I wasn't allowed to read my personal 
impact statement. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to be taken into consideration when sentencing. Again, um, I was encouraged to appeal by my family network. And if I hadn't have done that, um, then his ext- sentence wouldn't have been extended to three years. But anyway, they only serve half of the sentence because of the UK's prison system is so overcrowded that there's no room to keep these people. And um, I think he was he's on um, a sex offenders register for 15 years which means he has to report things but it's very much reliant on him doing his part where he's already proved that he's not a respectable responsible human being so you're then relying on this person to self-report a lot of his behaviors um but going back to the re-traumatizing thing at every stage the system is done very um clumsily and very like you said mechanically and there's no human emotion behind it there's no human perspective it's you are basically a piece of evidence you are no longer a human with thoughts feelings a heart uh you just get wheeled out and then pushed back again and then very much as i stated at the beginning i am in a hugely privileged position in comparison to some other um people if you are from a deprived area or from a um position where you're not so economically stable i couldn't even imagine having to uh navigate this because you've got so many other things that are pulling at you how can you kind of get around the head fuckery of getting through what is supposed to be a system that um protects victims or actually it it victimizes victims right actually that's a, a good segue kind of into my next question because we're we're hearing more and more about sexual viol- or uh, sexually violent predators that are currently among our police force, specifically mm-hmm. in the UK. Um, the name Wayne Cousins comes to mind, um, mm-hmm. who, for those who don't know, um, serving the Metropolitan Police in London, raped, murdered Sarah Everard um, and attempted to cover it up. But there are so many more Wayne Cousins who are actively on police duty as we're having this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. Um, is in the legal justice system, do you think it is actually set up to not only house and protect the sexual predators um, in the institution itself, but by having a reporting process that perpetuates the victimization of the survivors, do we have a system that is essentially set up to keep the perpetrators perpetrating and the survivors silenced? Yeah, it kind of calls on what Dame Vera bird was kind of getting across when she first stepped into the victim commissioner's role was that effectively in the uk from what she had seen rape had become decriminalized yeah because even getting to the point of reporting is so so difficult and like like i mentioned at the very beginning when um one of the first questions i was asked was has this happened to you before have you reported a rape before it's always the focus is on proving your validity rather than actually looking after you and helping you get through the process that and come to realization that someone has done this to you it's always you need to prove to them that this has happened rather than them helping prove to the rest of the world that this has happened and I think like you say it's very much set up just to keep the perpetrators perpetrating and that probably has a lot to do with the fact that the institution itself is um, misogynistic in the way that it's set up. Yeah, I think and the people the moment, that are there to protect you, there is a proportion of them who are actually the the people that yeah. are out there sexually abusing and raping. 
Um, you'll have to fact check this, but it, it was a report I was listening to the other day on the news that I think in the Met Police is about a, a just over a thousand police officers at the moment that are suspended, and that they are investigate under investigation for ill behaviour. Uh, not all Ill of that behaviour. Mm. Love that. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> not all of that will be connected to um, sexual assault or rape or um, misogyny, but it will be connected to other related things um, or racism, things that are equally as disgusting. Yeah. Um, and like you say, if those people are supposed to be protecting us and the Met is dealing with a deficit of a thousand officers, how the, f- like, that's a, that's a whole police force. Right. Like, how, how is anyone going to be protected or feel safe? And the, the thing that kills me about that, Abby, is that what we know from statistics, from the research that have been done out there, that sexual predators, rapists, child molesters, these are people who the, re-offend, the, the re-offenders rate is almost 100%, yep. if not 100%. These are not people that are, re- you cannot rehabilitate them. No. Proven. And the fact that your rapist only got 18 months, he will be out on the streets, and I'm sure you were not his first victim, and you will certainly not be his last. And they are just putting them back out on the streets, and you have people that are going away for white-collar crime, you know, yep. not paying taxes or whatever the case may be that has to do with money, for way longer mm-hmm. than 18 months. So where where is our priorities as a society if yeah. not in protecting women and children? Yeah, exactly. It's priorities, isn't it? And um, something of a financial crime is seen to hit harder than something that is personal and violates you as an individual, as a woman. You know, I could, there's so many, I have so many things that I'd want to ask and want to say, but I just think about my own son and Mm -hmm. my wife and I have had many conversations about this because we are raising a boy who will eventually become a functioning member of society and be a man in society. And for us, it for me, it's like a non-negotiable that I am raising him to be accountable for himself, to be responsible, to take, um, be respectful and, and thoughtful with others and have self-awareness. And we started from a very young age teaching him um, about consent, obviously in an age-appropriate way, but teaching him that he is not entitled to whatever he wants. And, you know, the way that we've gone about that is, you know, saying things like no means no, stop means stop. So even if he's doing, you know, just something not listening to us when we're saying it's bedtime and he's still playing with his toys and we'll say, when we say stop, what does stop mean? And he says it means stop. So in an age appropriate way, just planting those seeds at a very early age. And you mentioned at the beginning saying um, that of all of the reported rapes and the sexual assaults, I think you said it was 98% of those are men. Yeah, men. So yeah. What, where, would you, where do you think as a society, where, where are we dropping the ball? Because I feel like it, it is in childhood that, these mm-hmm. are, that there is an entitlement um, that is institutionalized, whether we like to admit it or not, it, it is ingrained within all of the systems that function mm-hmm. within society, that men have, are entitled to things that don't belong to them and that women are there for them. So how, how do you think we go about kind of changing that, redirecting that and raising the next generation of boys to be better men? 
I think that it speaks to actually um, one of your previous guests, Cindy Gallup, and that episode, which was amazing. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> I think, she is. It, I think it's all about the education and right. the fact that at the moment that um, children are self-educating, whether we want to believe it or not, they are seeing things that they shouldn't be seeing because they yeah. are far too young. And so they don't understand that what they're seeing and that then becomes naturalized behaviors to them that then becomes something that they think is the norm and that's that's the accepted way to do things whether that's sex or how you speak to women or how mm-hmm. how you see women the value that you um associate with women so i think that it's about educating and we can't i mean i'd love to say let's just stop children from accessing porn but i have got no idea how we would manage to do that as a society but enabling them to understand what they're seeing is a massive kind of win and also not being scared and not being ashamed which we are great as as british people um Oh, I'm saying that from my British and British point of view. I don't want to love you. in Canada, we carry shame. Don't worry. <laughs> but we have like really shitty conversations at home. Like they're really awkward. I mean, I was very lucky um, with how my parents brought me up. We had a really open conversation. Again, yeah. like you're saying, age appropriate at all times about sex. And so that really kind of gave me a lot of skills and understanding and knowledge that otherwise I would have been just guessing or going on the the lead of the the boy or whoever it was that I was getting the situations with and then so I think it's kind of about having those conversations it's at home as well as at school so that you're having part of the education at school but then it's being reinforced at home Mm -hmm. um kind of taking from what you're what uh you and Sam are doing already yeah Here's a template. And speaking of the home and and raising children, so you know a lot of the times, um, obviously parents are doing it together, but women are, for the most part, primary kind of carers mm-hmm. when it comes to that, and that's obviously changing. And and um, it, it's great to see men taking on a more hands on role mm-hmm. within the household and raising the children. But what role do you think women play? Oftentimes we we protect our abusers, certainly in domestic violence situations. And sometimes we reason these things away. I had uh, Lula Dembele on uh, the podcast. Um, and we did an episode on domestic violence and childhood sexual abuse. And that was one of the things that we were discussing. And she herself had the experience of her maternal grandmother almost blaming Lula as a child for as a five-year-old girl, you know, wriggling in the man's lap and all of this kind of stuff, which is absolute nonsense, but, you know, it is commonplace and we don't, it's, you know, it's uncomfortable and we don't like to admit it, but as women, we are also responsible and we do play a role in this. So uh, how do you, how do you think we go about almost educating women to stop perpetuating the protection of these men? I think, I think it's really challenging for me personally. I experienced um, the wife of the rapist and she was very, very hostile towards me. She was pregnant at the time and her world had been destroyed, but she immediately assumed that I was making it up, even though, I mean, what the fuck is anyone going to gain from making something like that up? Why would you make something like that up? Yeah. Insane. And I think that it's really important, whether you're the mum or the wife or the sister or a friend, um, to really 
you know, like set out boundaries of what is right and wrong behavior, it's acceptable behavior. And I think it's really scary to see. So in um, the wake of the things that have been happening in on social media with regards to Russell Brand. Yeah. I, not that I wanted to torture myself so much, but I did take a quick look at some of the comments and you see so many women who have um, started to stand up to him or, or stand up for him, sorry, um, yeah. and push back. And I think it's this inability to hold two truths. So this person might be one, like a loving, caring person to you, but they also have been a monster. They also have the ability to be a disgusting. Exactly. Um, two things can be simultaneously true. Yeah. And I think until we get comfortable with being, with never knowing a whole person or being able to accept two truths about somebody, mm-hmm. um, then we'll never tackle it. So I think it's always, I'm not saying that you need to be really guarded and never let people in, but always keep that objective perspective that what you know might not be what someone else knows. Right. Um, and I think then you can go around also setting, like I said um, before, a boundary. So making it very clear what you see is acceptable behavior because myself, I mean, I can look back to when I first started work or even um, finishing school. There are behaviors that I look back now and go, Oh, I mean, it's disgusting. Why did you accept that? Like, why did you allow that to happen? Yeah. Or that's someone slapping you on the arse or, or whatever, but it's, it's one step away from the next thing, which sounds very dramatic when you go, Oh, slapping someone on the bum is not the same as rape, but it's those behaviors that go unchecked that then it's an entitlement. Yeah, exactly. I think is what it's rooted in. It's an entitlement that you to think that you could put your hands on somebody's body that they've, Mm -hmm. you know, unprovoked Mm -hmm. um, is certainly rooted in entitlement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, as women and and as young girls, if we can really, because we are always socialized to be people pleasers and to be, not to speak up um, or out for ourselves and to never be problematic. I think yeah. if we can change that and be like, no, these are things that we do not accept and give young, the, the next generation the tools to be able to say no, yes, then that's a great kind of stepping um, yeah. stone on the And also, you know, when when I say, you know, or sharing this statistic, as you did with 90% of the the rapes that take place are from uh, by men, Mm -hmm. is not by any means saying that all men are rapists, and all men are bad, and and all of that. That's not at all um, what I'm saying, or what you're saying, or what even Mm -hmm. what this statistic is suggesting. But it is men. And so my question also is, where are our male allies in this? Where are the good men when this is happening? Because with the statistics as high as they are, there's no way that there's a man walking on this earth who doesn't know a man who has committed a sexual assault. In whether it was a rape, an assault, whether a molestation, however you want to describe it, you will know somebody who is... A perpetrator. So where are you? Where is your voice? And we need our male allies because we can't do this by ourselves to fix this problem. Yeah. We need the men alongside us in this kind of crusade to, to, for change. A hundred percent. And also from a reporting process as well, because um, even if you look at the, the statistics and women in the police force and things of that nature, we are, they are predominantly men yeah. in this field of work. So we need, well, I guess I should actually pose this question to you from a reporting process. What specifically do you think needs to change 
And how can men help facilitate that? I think it's about kind of men being comfortable with the fact that this is something that happens. So again, kind of getting rid of that British or I mean, it's probably similar in other in other uh, Western countries, but that kind of awkwardness around talking um, about crimes that are personal, that are sexual, getting comfortable with that language. And then about like the male ally side of things, I think it's kind of starting on basic discourse. So when you, your friends or um, a colleagues are going down the lines of rape jokes or um, using it as a term, that really kind of takes away the impact. So I don't know, I was just trying to think of an example. Let's just say your football team, a football team beat another football team. You might hear um, someone go, oh, they, they raped them. And yeah. it just kind of takes away the impact of what that actually mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really important to change the discourse. And then with regards to the processes, it's getting um changing the discourse the other way with getting uh men and women um more comfortable talking about sex because if you can talk about it if you can have language around it then we can actually discuss it on an objective level rather yeah. than it being this like awkward hushed shunned oh type thing i don't really want to hear about it but if you're going to shout loud enough then maybe i'll have to listen type situation and i think it's so going back to your point about the the Russell Brand, well, I, I actually just watched the documentary, so it's actually good timing. Mm. But there was a fellow comedian who they interviewed. Yeah. And what he said just, it almost sent shivers down my spine. And it, it just really resonated because he sat there saying, I know what my privilege is that I can sit here on camera with you. And I can tell you wholeheartedly that like, we knew Russell Brand was um, a predator. There was a list that was shared amongst the female comedians whenever they'd go on the road that said, these are the male comedians that you need to avoid because they're predators. And that was commonplace that he was on this list. But more than that is that he said, my privilege is that I can sit here and I can say this out loud and confirm I know Russell Brand to be a sexual predator and there is no repercussion for me. My career will not take a hit. I will have no consequence, but that is not the same if a female comedian sat here and said yeah. the exact same thing. And that is a problem. Massive. And I and we need more men, and I can't remember what this comedian's name is, but watch the documentary. We need more men like him mm-hmm. because it has more of an impact. It shouldn't, but it does. It has more of an impact with him calling out that this behavior is unacceptable, that he he stands up and says, hands hands up, this is not acceptable behavior. I don't like it. I don't want this man near my sister, my mother, my wife, my girlfriend, my child, my daughter. Um, but if a woman does that, then her career will take a hit. She won't get yeah. as many gigs and you know she will have negative consequences to making those yeah. statements. So we need more allies like him. I think that also um, kind of sings to... Uh, male-dominated workspaces in general. Mm-hmm. I think if it doesn't even necessarily need to be like overt sexualized behavior, but any form of kind of insidious discrimination or sexual type behavior, if as a woman you start to speak out about it, there's always that danger or it's always sitting at the back of your head. But my boss is a man. The, ma- the person above him is a man. The person above mm-hmm. him is a man. The decision maker is a man. Yeah. And until 
we manage to kind of get equal representation, um, then it's that kind of fear is always going to be sat with the women. So until we're at an equal society, we need men to be helping with this. Of course we do. Of course we do. Um, and yeah, I, I, this is a call out to any, all the men that are listening or any of the women who are listening, who know they have a good man, have that conversation, you know, they need to be standing alongside us, you know, with a megaphone to the mouth, saying yeah. this stuff out loud, calling out their mates, calling out their bosses and just saying, as a man, I do not accept this behavior and I don't want to leave the world that we're living in for my daughter. So to kind of wrap things up, it would be really good. Um, you mentioned the rape crisis center that you, that you read those statistics from. Yes. Are there any other organizations? Because I know uh, rapecrisiscenter.org.uk, if you're listening and you have yourself have been raped, you know somebody who's rape, raped, or even if you know of somebody who is a sexual predator and you're not really sure what to do, um, you can find your local center on um, the rapecrisiscenter.org.uk. Are there any other organizations that you reached out to or utilized to help you through your journey? I there aren't that I can think of off the top of my head, but um, like you say, uh, the rapecrisis.org.uk um, will be able to pinpoint you um, in the sorry point you in the direction of your local centre, and from there you can pick up a lot of information on um, what type of counselling is available. Um, but what I will say is that the waiting lists are astronomical they are just ridiculous it's um there's just not enough resource and uh to kind of counteract what we actually need and what's happening so I think myself when I looked I think the waiting list was 18 months or something like that to be able to get um free uh counseling on a charity so whilst there's lots of things out there for people to help people just be prepared that you're gonna have to wait which prolongs that getting over and processing what's actually happened. That's actually really interesting information that I, I, I didn't know. And, you know, what do you think would alleviate some of that pressure? Does it need more funding? Do they need more, more hires? Um, both, I would say. Um, more funding, which would hopefully lead to more hires. Yeah. And just, again, kind of to take it seriously. It's not being taken very seriously at all in the UK. And when you think of the statistics of one in three women, yeah. it's just crazy. It's rampant. <clears throat> so why are these provisions not in place? I, I have no idea. I mean, I I wish that there was a quick fix for it. But with the kind of the way that you see government spending and cuts happening everywhere mm -hmm. and people's mental health in like the lowest it's been for years and years and years, that finding more funding for a specific counselling for victims and survivors of sexual assault and rape is probably one of the last priorities. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Very unfortunate. And so I finish off all of my uh, episodes asking my guests um, the same question. Um, are you open to yeah. Yeah. answering that? So was there ever a time outside of this moment which you had the bravery and the courage to speak out, which is, I, I applaud you, um, but was there ever another time where something happened that you didn't speak out and you wish that you did? Yeah, and it came to me just as we were speaking then um, around 
thinking back to childhood and thinking about the things that I accepted from boys mm. and then that turned into men when I got to work. And if I had learnt to say that's unacceptable when I was five and a boy's looking up my skirt or whatever at school, then I would have carried that through to being an adult in the workplace and being able to assert my boundaries effectively um, when it came to interacting with male colleagues. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, giving me the opportunity to speak with you today. So I just want to end on this note that if you are a survivor of sexual assault, sexual abuse of any kind, male or female, to please come forward, use your voice. Um, the only way that we stop this behavior and start changing the systems is by saying this out loud. You're not alone. And I'm here if anyone wants to DM me for some for some help or some advice. Um, and there are others, uh, people that I can direct you to as well. So please use your voice. Um, and I'm so grateful that you used yours today. Um, and that by you having the bravery and courage to say what you just say, said and share your story, that you are empowering others to come forward as well. And that hopefully gives you some semblance of empowerment and taking that back from your rapist. So thank you so much, Abby, for your courage today. Well, thank you, Jenny. And that was um, quite right. Like you said, it, the term empowerment. So what I have said today was not to scare anybody, not to put anybody off from reporting. It's giving you the, the knowledge that you need to be able to then navigate probably more efficiently than what I did and the empowerment to do so. So thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Are We Whispering podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening and leave a review. You can also follow us on Instagram at Why Whisper Podcast. And don't forget to speak up and out. Let's stop whispering.